kind of gets it. And I I know literally nothing about cooking. I'm a mess in the kitchen, so her help is tremendously beneficial. Would so. you take a cooking class? Yeah, I thought we talked about that. There's not any in Altoona. Number one, that's an issue. You got to go to state college to take a cooking class, and it's only like one session. So it's like fifty bucks a session. Wow. Like, why the hell am I gonna go pay fifty bucks a session to learn how to cook? If I get into the kitchen, it's like I become mentally handicapped. Like I can't do anything. I drop stuff and there's a mess. And I think I've come to the point I realize it's just not one of my strong suits. I should be able to cook to save my life. That's pretty much the end of it. It's not who I am. Do you um? I'm fine with that. Do you, you ever cook at all growing up or anything? No, never. My parents didn't really cook. It was all like microwavable dinners. I mean, my mom cooked, but she's not a good cook. My mom would do really weird things like take a make make hamburgers, like cook hamburgers, and then put them in a vat of like marinara sauce. Like, why the hell would you have? <laughs> <laughs> like I just want a hamburger. I don't want it soaked in the sauce. Just like weird shit like that. Like she would just do weird things that didn't make any sense. And that was like the history of me. Unless she was making like hamburger helper or chef boyardee or something like that, that was always good. But that's because it's out of a box. You can't yeah. just screw it up. I like hamburger helper. But left to her own devices, she was kind of a disaster. Which I guess is my case. That's why I love just eating food that has no. You know, I don't need to prepare. Just peel a banana and eat it. Can I, can I turn this off, or do you want it on the whole time? Um, I can use my phone if I need if I need my notes. Oh, yeah, <laughs> do you need the lighting? Well, I'll leave the light on if you're using it. I can turn use the light on my phone. <laughs> no, man, it's cool. I'll, I'll leave this one on. I still want like facing. It was like facing right on. <laughs> How light a How light a candle? I just. Yeah, you know, a candle would work. I just need this. I I wrote it too light. I wrote it really in a hurry before I came over here. I was trying to think of some lessons I learned. All right. That'll be your microphone there. Okay. This will be my microphone here. Check one. Okay. Check one, check two, check three. I'm glad to hear things went well with the black dog. My, my, I told my father-in-law about it. He goes to the black dog all the time. And he's like, how can I get in? What do I got to do? I'm like, I don't know. Well, if I would have known, um, I mean, he could have <clears> went was, in and stood. You know, he would have talked the whole time or something. He's a chatty Cathy. Uh, I had some guy. Do you have any hecklers? Off his phone. Oh, oh yeah. yeah, I had some hecklers. But I had this one guy that didn't turn off his phone. The phone rang right in the middle of... I was talking about being in a bar and this woman's cleavage got my attention and I couldn't pay attention to anything else and my brain, I was so drunk my brain began the descent down and they said and the doors open up and he's in the gonad, my, my brain's in the gonad room and <laughs> this guy got a phone call and I started harassing him and he's not even paying attention, the whole audience is like busting up, he's not paying attention he's texting whoever it was called now I'm just talking about yeah, your penis is so small. You better use my a picture of mine. Send it to your girlfriend now. I mean, I was just busting his chops. And uh, finally he looks up. He's like, are you talking about me? Uh, yeah. <laughs> I'm talking about you. That's a rule. A lot of comedians now, you can't even have phones. They put them in those black bags. They should. And we went to see, uh, we just saw Louis C.K. in Pittsburgh, and you had to, like, 
put your phone in like this black case and the case seals and only the people running the door can open it. So you have your phone in this case, but you can't do anything with it. So how long does it take you to get out then when you when you leave with the, them opening all the... Not long. Cause it's just like a thing they clip slide, clip slide, like clips on there and slides real fast. I don't know how it works. Well, I know a lot of the comedians, um, they don't want, when they're trying material out, they keep trying the same material place after place, so they don't want anyone knowing what they're going to say because they won't yeah. think it's funny. Because it'll ruin like the hour-long bit they're putting together yeah. or whatever. Yeah. How long did Louis C.K. go on for? Uh, there was three people before him. All in all, I think it was like, <clears throat> I think we were there for almost three hours. But I want to say Louis was probably 40 minutes, something like that. Was he good? Oh, it was so I love funny. him. It was so good. So he's making a comeback right now. Yeah. And he's, I mean, I could care less about all the, the, the accusations and stuff. I mean, he's openly admitted it, too. But that, to me, when it comes to stand-up comedy, I mean, unless it's like Bill Cosby drugging and raping women, you know, it's like, it just adds to the hilariousness of his life that he actually did that sort of shit. And he actually has admitted, not directly in past stand-up, but he's like alluded to, he's made jokes about it. Oh, about him masturbating? Oh, yeah. my God. He makes jokes about that all the time. Yeah, so it was like not – yeah. So I, 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 my wife and I, we could care less. I, he's probably the funniest stand-up comedian, him, Dave Chappelle, and a few others, like the best ever. So, oh, he was so funny. And his he, he was more dark than he's ever been. I think he was just trying stuff, and he was trying to, like, see how far he could go, and he was getting really sick. Like his one bit – there was one about fucking babies – there's something about that. That was that got pretty bad. And Ooh. then, yeah, he's just going for it. Like he's just <laughs> going for it. Wow! <laughs> Not him doing it. It was somebody else. I can't remember. That's one thing about stand up. When I, when you go to see it, I can never remember what was so funny. I can't re- remember the bits. But yeah, he had some stuff. It was it was out there. Why well, was something on that uh, was really dark on? And he said he didn't want to give his body to science. He said he had an idea for a new business model. He said, put his body in a room where people could just do whatever they want with it. He said, people could fuck me in the ear, fuck me in the nose, come in my mouth. And he's going on. I'm like, oh, my God, I can't believe he's saying this. Yeah, he's he's the greatest. I don't know. There's not many better than Louis C.K. Just over the past, like, maybe close to a decade, though. If you watch his older stuff, it's not that good. Like, he wasn't that funny. But he, he gets got, better. Uh, no, he is he's getting only better. He's gotten better, yeah. Did you see the last Saturday Night Live skit he went on? Uh, probably. I can't remember he's, what it was. He, he starts off with, why did the chicken cross the road? Well, there's a black guy following him. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I'm not racist. He's, he goes on. He just. I don't think I did see that. I'll have to go back and try to find it. I get mad at SNL because I feel like it's it's hit or miss. It oh my It all God. depends on how well this this the bit is, you know, if the bit's not good, nobody can make it funny. There was uh I'm trying to think who was on this year. Only one time was it worth watching and it it the news is consistently decent. But why is that? And but, why does weekend update get like more time than anything else like by far? Like I don't understand that. It doesn't make any sense to me. People just watch that and they know people are just fast forwarding through the rest. I fast forward through that. And watch the rest. I always <laughs> fast forward through Weekend Update. Um, all right, let's do this. Right. I have to make a phone call at 3.30. So we, we could like pause, or if we're done by then, we can just be done. But i got to call this guy who runs 
uh, Compass Media Networks. Kind totally of up to you, man. exciting phone call. Um, okay. Make sure your microphone's fairly close to your mouth, yep. if you can. Are you? Do you have a, are you chewing? Mm-hmm. You have a dip in. Mm-hmm. Okay. Do you want like something to spit in that doesn't crinkle? If you have one. I've not had one today. It was ki- it was killing me. I was like, I really don't want to do one now, but I haven't had one today. Really, that's too nice. <laughs> now I'm gonna feel guilty. There's been more disgusting things in it than your spit. Oh, I'm just kidding. Just coffee, as far as I know of. Okay. And we might as well just start. Uh, Tony Bambachi. Is that how I should refer to you? Yeah. Okay. And so what I do is I'll have you send me a bio, and I'll talk about the bio in the beginning of the podcast. And then so when I start talking to you, we can just get right into the stuff and not, like, tell all of the past. I feel okay. like that sometimes takes up the whole conversation. It does. So I like to have that out of the way. And then if we can still, re- we can still reference back to it if we need to, but if not, we don't have to. Do you know my history? From the speech you gave okay. at, uh, at Peak Performers, and then I read your bio on the uh, – What's your company's name? Um, or was GTL? Com- GTL, and it's all based. It's all based in the prison system, right? Yeah. It's so all software. Software for the phone system and for uh, security systems, and yeah, running the whole prison. Basically. I imagine that was a pretty lucrative business. It was at the time, and then I sold it, and then what? Now it's, it's not it's saturated. I mean, oh, is it really? Yeah, the consolidation phase has occurred. There's. Let's put it this way. Two players control 94% of the inmate market right now. Wow. Two players. Well, you had what it said like 80% at some point or something like that. Is that right? Is that what it said? I had 80% of county corrections. This county. Okay. There's state systems and there's federal. Man. Yeah, so, I was tearing and, it up. So two companies run all of that. Two companies state, federal. run state, federal, and county. Holy shit. So yeah. the monopoly happened over the years? Yeah, the two they bought family. all the small players up. That's what's happening to the, the internet right now. It's going to be a major issue. Yes, it is. <laughs> it's turning into it quickly. <clears throat> okay. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the show. Uh, today, Tony Bambachi is here with me. Tony, thank you for being in the studio. Oh, thank you, Rob. I appreciate it. I'm super excited about this conversation. So uh, let's just jump right in the way I always love to jump right in. Because I'm just I'm fascinated by how over time you find things that you wish somebody would have told you when you were much younger and it could have changed the course of your life if you would have known about that thing when you were, you know, ten, fifteen, twenty years old. So do you have an example of something, you know, that you've learned it could be this past year or it could be just in, you know, the past decade or whatever, that would have impacted you a lot when you were ten, fifteen, twenty years old? Would have changed the course of your life or your business or whatever that might be? Sure. I would say the number one thing that I know now that I didn't know then is it's very important that you go out in the world and tell everybody what you do. Expand the number of connections you have in this world we live in because you never know where your next customer is coming from, your next idea, your next big break. It can come from anywhere. Mm-hmm. I mean, mine came from a sociology professor at Penn State University who was playing racquetball. <laughs> That's where my biggest break came from. I mean, it, it was just making a conversation with somebody at at the summit. I mean, that's where my first break came from. 
So while 99% of the people that you tell what you do to may never, ever call you and use your services, it's that one guy. So the more people you tell, the more one guy's potential you have out there. Yeah, and I think that's a huge point to make because how many people, and I just I, I host some social media seminars locally, and I hear it over and over and over again, people who don't want to tell their story or tell their idea because somebody's going to come along and steal it. Like, I don't want to tell anybody because somebody's going to grab it. Like, listen, your idea is not that revolutionary and groundbreaking that nobody <laughs> else thought of it. You know? Like, you can tell people, like, you should be sending that out there, but I think that's a very limiting mindset to have. And a lot of people have that mindset. They're stuck in that thing of, like, I have this great idea, but I can't release the information. So they're just going to spend eternity, the rest of their lives, trying to somehow get it off the ground without dispelling all the details about it. And I agree with you. I've seen that happen many, many times. And there are very simple ways and inexpensive ways to combat that. I mean, if you get someone to sign a non-disclosure agreement, they're cheap. Download one from the Internet. Make people (laughs) sign it. There's proof. You told them on this date your idea. Simple. Um, I would say that one of the other lessons I learned when you deal with especially big companies that you're telling ideas to, it's important that you have intellectual property protection, whether it's a trademark. And I've been sued many times by people to stop using their name, but Uh I had a trademark to protect me. Um, Or, well, in the early days, I did not, and I I couldn't use (laughs) uh, that name for a product. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And then, uh, you know, I've been sued for patent infringement before, and those cases are very expensive. And if you have no patent protection on your product then then it costs you know a patent lawsuit can cost you two million whether you're right or wrong and that's the sad truth of it but if you have your own intellectual property that you can exchange with another company you can avoid those costs so another example of a lesson learned (laughs) whenever you're going through stuff like that because that's one of the things i always look at is man i never want to have to deal with lawsuits but when you get to a a level where you're big enough you're going to have to because somebody's going to try to sue you for something eventually yeah it just happens they just want something and um how does that weigh on you as a person because you've been you said you've been through multiple lawsuits yes sir you personally or the company or was it a little bit of both always the company okay so you're protected number one from through the company personally protected but you know it's a big hit to your ebitda yeah (laughs) your bottom line i mean you have to you have to put money into a budget bucket that you didn't plan on spending for a lawsuit and in your it drives you crazy because it's it's like an unexpected and unnecessary expense that doesn't move the business forward yeah it's like you got to put the brakes on just much. to deal with that thing and get through it. Um, how personally, like, how did you get through those things? What was the stress level like? Like, how did it affect you in your business? Because that's something I look to, like, in the future. Uh, you you get big enough, it's probably going to happen. I mean, to prepare for it's kind of difficult, but um, to me- maybe to mentally prepare yourself, like, how am I going to react in these sorts of situations when you're dealing with somebody, especially if you know they're just doing this to gouge money out of you. Um, and that probably would just get under your skin. Uh, what was that like for you? Well, uh, once you get over the shock. <laughs> <laughs> I, for example, I had just come back from vacation, and I played the, the voicemail in my office phone. And there's a voice from a guy from a c- competitor's company that says, 
Gee, I really hate to do this to you on voicemail, but I just uh, filed a patent infringement suit against your company in the Eastern District Court of Texas. Um, Call me to discuss it. (laughs) And you just just stare at the phone. (laughs) You look up to the heavens and you say, what did I do to you? Right. What did I do to deserve this? At least you just went on vacation, I guess. You got the vacation out of the way. I did. I was relaxed. Before you came back to that. It was uh, it was like someone put heart paddles on me, though. I was jolted back to, to business. Yeah. Um, I would say this, though. If you have a really good attorney that you've – I would say to have those in, in, your, in your contact file. Have a different attorney for every scenario that can happen. Oh, okay. And know who's good and know who's bad. So, for example, our attorney was the, was the attorney who won the um, – patent infringement suit against Black the BlackBerry phone people. Oh. Uh, so he was really good. And he basically said, look, uh, we I think we can win this case. It's going to cost you $2 million in the long run. It'll take two to three years to settle. He said that the discovery process was going to be brutal. We'd lose focus on our business because all our people would be um, – uh, deposed to to, to uh, undergo scrutiny from attorneys, mm. and he said, "If you can sell settle it for somewhere significantly less than two million, I would do that." And so that's exactly what we did. Uh, okay, to avoid uh, the whole process. Yeah, we went to the other company and we said, "Here's our books. You can't get blood from a, a stone. W- what do you think's fair? Do you want to put me out of business? Okay, fine." You want to put me out of business? I will give you the two million dollars, mm-hmm. and then we're done. He said, "No, I don't want to put you out of business. That's not my intent." What was his intent? His intent was to um, get $2 create a monetary stream of IP royalties for the the extensive patents his company had. Ah, okay. And 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 so he wanted money to pay it indefinitely. So we did, and we. Uh, it's a funny story. He actually came to El Tuna, and we cut the deal at Dunkin' Donuts oh, yeah. <laughs> at a table <laughs> on a piece of paper and a napkin. <laughs> How did you – what was your feelings about that when you actually met up with him? I think this stuff's super important because this doesn't happen to everybody, right? If you never have a business, you'll probably never deal with these sorts of things. But when they creep up, it's nice to, I think, have a story, a guideline, or some sort of storyline from somebody else who's been through it. So, like, when you sat down with him, where was your head at in that moment? Were you, were you feeling calm? Had you been going through this long enough that you were not, like, on the boiling point? No, I've learned. Uh, <laughs> I, I, one thing you learn in business is to control your temper. Mm-hmm. And I went in open-minded, and uh, my intent was to throw, throw him off guard by being completely transparent, by showing him my financials. Mm, okay. My audited financial statements, so he knew they were accurate. I gave him uh, the phone number of my accountant and said, you can verify these numbers. These are true. So let's try to work on something. And in fact, he didn't even make me pay the number. He gave me three years to pay him. Uh, he was very – it was very good. It, you know, the whole world is about relationships. Yeah. If you can have a relationship with somebody and you – you can build some level of trust with the other person, then you can negotiate anything. Mm-hmm. You know, the one thing I learned in business was you spend so much time doing a contract 
with someone, especially in my old business, which was, you know, we did these big customized software jobs. And these were all for prison systems. For prison systems, yeah. yes. But but you ended up some of our contracts could be three, four hundred pages. Wow. Jeez. And you say, who's going to read that? Once you complete the sale, you sign the contract, who's going to read that contract? Nobody. 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 So contracts, in my opinion, are ne- a necessary evil, but they're only there for when trust breaks down between the two parties. Mm-hmm. And you have to go back to that contract to say, no, this is what you said you were going to do. Mm-hmm. And you're not doing any of it. And... uh I, I just think if you have a trusting relationship with the other party, you can accomplish so much more and so much more quickly than you do if you're going line by line. Well, you need to do this. The contract says this on page 14, item line item 15. Yeah. And it's all about relationships when it comes down to that. And I think you're totally right. I say this to people all the time. You know, if you have an issue with somebody, and especially that this applies to like kids in high school or, you know, college or whatever. If you, that one person that you think you have such a problem with, <clears throat> that you think is like your arch nemesis or whatever, if you and that person were locked in a room together and had to sit there and deal with each other, you'd end up finding some sort of common place. That's right. And you would, would not hate each other anymore. I honestly feel like, I feel like that about anybody, even people that I don't like necessarily. I guarantee if I was locked in a room with them and we had to just be ourselves with each, with each other, we ended up being cool with each other. Now, maybe somebody else would not let that happen. Who knows? I don't know what the situation would be. But I think you're 100% right. Whenever you come down to just dealing with people, people are just people. When you're dealing with contracts and corporations and stuff like that, you, it gets muddy. You it get d- it does get in, muddy. in the mess. I, I think social media and, the, and email and all, all of our electronic forms of communication – have only served to make it easier for people to hide yeah. from each other. I mean, there's a lot of people that are big talkers when they're on email or they're on <laughs> social media or they're on Twitter. You know, that's easy. Saying all these nasty things about people, about people they don't even know. But if they sat down with them and they talked to them, there's always, I have never been in a situation where there's not a middle ground somewhere. Mm-hmm. And the best deals are always when each side is a little unhappy. Okay, right? that's, yeah. If, if one side's guy, totally satisfied, the other side's not going to be... The other side's devastated. Yeah. You, you, you might have a customer, for example, who hates you because you took everything from him. You gave him nothing. Mm-hmm. Why do that to people? Yeah, find the, the middle ground. Uh, so... It's talking about what you you've been doing. So when did you started your company when? When did you guys begin? 1984. <laughs> How do you view the world because you went through, I mean, designing software in 84 to now. And I'm sure you're you're probably not still in the software game, are no, you? No, no. <laughs> but you do you still watch that world? Do you still see how things are moving or have you removed yourself from it completely? The world of corrections, I've removed myself completely. What about the world of software? Are you still like in design and stuff like that? No, or? I still stay plugged into that um, because there's the, the entrepreneurial part of me, the creativity part that needs to stay plugged in in case I think of something else to do. You know? Yeah. I, I always want to stay close to what I know, and that's something I know. But and that's your passion, too, I'd imagine. It like is. That's... 
How, what have you seen over the past? Because that's really cool that you started that in 84. So you saw really the huge arc that happened, especially into the 2000s and to, to where we're at now. Um, what's your opinion on not talking about the corrections uh, jobs, but just software in itself and how it has sh- sh- scoped, shaped our entire world? Um, do you see it as it's getting better as far as uh, making society better. Uh, obviously, the, the software, the intelligence is getting better. But where do you sit when you look at it, like from a, you know, a worldly perspective, like an above? Well, it's <laughs> that's a loaded question. Let me let me let me answer you in chunks. Okay, yeah, because it's so, kind of a big question. So, from 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 a purely a technology perspective, it's interesting to me how how little it's actually changed. And I'm going to tell you what I mean by that. Okay. Because you'll say, that's not true. It's changed tremendously. And I mean purely from this angle. When I started, there were mainframes, and everything was centralized. Mm -hmm. Now, you had green screens. Yes, I know that. Um, But everything was hosted on a giant centralized mainframe. And then with the advent of the PC, you got personal applications – and everything became client server. You'd put a little mini system in your office, and everyone in your office would, um, you know, access that centralized file server. And now it, everything is back to you know in the cloud, right. hosted. It, it just reminds me of we, we just went back to the mainframe days. Oh, wow. Although the front ends are much nicer, there's more bandwidth available than was back then. It's much more easier to use software now. All that, but from a pure um, technology standpoint, it, it really hasn't changed that much as far as the way people connect to information. That's fascinating. So, I mean, there's a, there's you know, Amazon and Microsoft, they all have big, big clouds out there that people can have access to. And that's that's a great benefit. Mm-hmm. It's like people have access to mainframe level data storage, you know, but, you know, they've moved everything back from the PC, including Microsoft Office. It's all in the cloud now. Yeah. Uh, it's, I, I find that interesting. Did you see that happening? Did you, did you see that coming? No, I I, I wish I did. <laughs> I, I did not. Um, I was one of those guys that said, I forget when email came out. I, I said, I will never use email over a phone call. <laughs> but I, Now I'd rather text somebody than either one. <laughs> absolutely, 100%, because all this new technology has made people more productive. And I think that's the biggest change is not – it is technology, but it's it's mostly in terms of productivity. People are so productive, they, they load up their plate with far more work than they ever did. They're stressed out, but they're harder to get hold of. Mm-hmm. So trying to actually have a live conversation with someone, you know, that, that can take days before they call you back. Yeah. And I understand it's so much easier to do an email or a text or... Yeah, boy, that's 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 an interesting point too because I I do that myself. I, sometimes it'll take me a couple of days to get back to somebody, and it's not that I don't want to talk to them. It's just that I know that if I take that time right now, that phone call is going to take a while. Now, a text can be pretty quick, email a little bit maybe longer, uh, depending on what you're writing. But when it's a phone call, you know you're probably going to invest time, and I you're probably the way I am. Like I, 
if it's somebody that I like, especially, I enjoy talking to them. So I know if I get on the phone with them, we're going to talk. It's going to be a conversation. So it's going to be a while. So I want to like save that for when I have the appropriate amount of time. Now, back in the day, you didn't really have that option. You pick up the phone. You're, well, to your you're point, into it. You, you have to, I mean, everything in life, the be, I, I think the, the people who are most successful have learned how to prioritize everything, mm-hmm. particularly emails. You know, I, I, I mean, I had my own system. If it wasn't about work, I, the, I wasn't getting back to them until whenever I had nothing else to do. Mm-hmm. If it's about work, you take your boss's emails and make them a priority. <laughs> if it's about a project, moving a project forward, you know, th- those came those came next. You know, that sort of thing. But even on phone calls, you say, oh, I know this guy is going to talk to me for 20 minutes. I don't have that now. Yeah. I will have to call him back at 8 o'clock tonight or whatever. Yeah. So – you just have to you have to take all the time wasting out of your day to be productive. <laughs> so when it comes to work ethics, the, your story is interesting because you were a part of a, a company that you started for how how long were you ahead of twenty five years? Twenty five years, okay, and then jumped out, made the sitcom for Amazon Prime, which is uh, almost grown ups. And, yes. and now you're doing stand-up. Just did your first stand-up gig last night. Yep. Which went well. <laughs> it did. It By went very well. By the time this comes out, maybe it'll be out there for somebody to uh, yeah, we're, well, grab I hope hold it's up. on Amazon Prime. Yep. Cool. I do. Um, what's your, what, your work ethic? Uh, what is your mindset when it comes to – is it the same as it was 25 years ago? Is it the same as it was back in 1984 as it is now? How do you approach a job? What does your day look like? Like how do you – Make sure that you get up and get the things done that you want to get done. Because I find, especially running my own business, and I'm sure you can attest to this, personal development is key and probably the most important thing. you got to learn how to manage yourself, and you got to learn how you operate to be able to get things done the way you want them done. I'm glad you brought that up because I think that's, that's, that's probably one of my other, other lessons learned. Okay. Um, and especially when you have early success in a business, things are going well, personal productivity falls by the wayside. Mm. And if you should always be learning. I mean, that is the one lesson I learned. There's so much out there you can learn that you don't know. And I spent – I mean, I read this book called Good to Great, and it was taught – and the first line was, good is the enemy of great. We don't have great schools because we have good schools, et cetera, et cetera. And I thought about it. It was one of those I couldn't get off the first page trying to, what does he really mean by that? And, of course, the book goes on to explain what he means by that. But really, as we become complacent with just good enough. Yeah. And the only way we can take it to the next level is by self-improvement and learning new things, Re- whether it's reading a book and by the way, reading a book doesn't do it. It's taking what you read and implementing it into your business or your life. I mean, that, that's where the gains come from, not just by reading it. Mm-hmm. Oh, that was a good book. I'll put it on my shelf. And, yeah, that's the first step. That's, that's you gotta only read it the first, first step, right. Because <laughs> <laughs> once you put it out of sight, out of mind when it's on that shelf, right? Yeah, and I think that's what – I mean, I have done that many times. Uh, you read a great book and it's so powerful and you write down notes – and it was very impactful. Then I'll think like, oh, man, now i got to implement all this stuff. Where do I start? And then I don't start, right? Because it's like there's too much. Where do, I, where do you begin? So it's 
yeah, that's a huge piece of it. So as far as work ethic goes, um, making sure you're reading and implementing. But what is you know a daily routine uh, that you like to stick to, or has that changed over the years? Or how oh, it's complete. That? It's so different is from it? from what it was. Well, remember, I twenty five years of my own business sold it and to a company that was owned by private equity, and I worked for them for seven years. Okay. On after that, you had to from. I did it. not have to. I uh, I actually enjoyed what I did. Um, uh, I liked learning new things. I learned a lot. I learned so much from people who were smarter than me and had done way more things than I, I've ever accomplished in my life. I mean, our CEO started a cable company in Venezuela. Um, he was an executive at Verizon. He he. He w- if he hadn't left, he'd be the uh, CEO of Verizon today, I believe. Wow. Um, he was a very smart man. He was a hard taskmaster, but he taught me a lot. And um, I think, though, that post that, I mean, obviously, uh, you come to a point in your life where you say, okay, I've satisfied my level of income and I'm comfortable. What can I do now? What can I do now that stretches myself as a person and, and think outside the box? And I, I think what I do now is I don't have to do anything. Mm-hmm. So to force myself into a routine, I, I create a sense of urgency in my brain that really isn't there. Mm-hmm. So, for example, if it's 7 o'clock in the morning – I could sleep till 10 if I wanted to, but I force myself, my, I force my brain to get up and I exercise. So I spend a lot more, I, I spend, you know, an hour and a half every day focused purely on my health, if not longer. Um, so I stay in shape. Then I write. I make sure I write an hour a day, whether it's um, a book that I, I want to write or it's a screenplay or something just so I keep my brain active, mm-hmm. right? And then I have different people that ask me to invest in their businesses, so I'll usually review materials they sent me. Um, and then I, uh, I I make a lot of phone calls t- toward the afternoon about those business investments, mostly doing due diligence, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Um you know, I check the stock market a lot. I, I watch that. I keep up on the news. I make sure I, I read um, different uh, news posts from the Wall Street Journal or something like that, you know, so I stay on top of things politically. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I usually uh, I, I do things like this podcast. I do, you know, speeches on leadership. I talk to college classes. I do all that because I like – getting up in front of people number one but number two i enjoy helping people i think that's that's a role i i I want to ride off into the sunset doing is helping others Mm -hmm. and i think one particular way that i can help others is with social media you know there's so many people who grew up Without social media, number one, and number two, don't want to even try it. They don't want to be on Facebook. They don't want to be on Instagram. They don't know what Twitter is. Um, but they want to grow their businesses. Yeah. And they don't realize that 
you know, you can't put an ad in the newspaper anymore. You can't pick up the phone and do cold calls. You can't do email blasts because they go to the junk folder. Yeah. And if you want to learn, if you want to grow fast, learn how to use social media effectively. And it, you can grow faster than you'd ever dreamed of if it's done right. That's right. 1,000% agree with you. Absolutely. I think what you said there, like at the beginning, uh, at the beginning of your day, getting up and, and working out and making sure that you're writing, like focusing on you first, like the first thing in the morning, making Absolutely. sure the you time is super important. And I've been doing that recently. I try, I was getting up an hour before my son got up. Now I get up an hour and a half to two hours before he gets up because I know the rest of my day I'm going to be itching to try to get in me time. And the less I get in, the more frustrated I'm going to get. So if you just get up earlier, you can get it out of the way. Nobody wakes up early. I mean, most people don't. So you can kind of get your stuff in before anything else happens. Now, you have the luxury now. Of, I mean, your your kids are older. They're grown up. And you can kind of you can do your own thing. But I feel like at, at any stage in your life, when you get up and start focusing on you, making sure you're exercising, and writing is so huge. And I, you probably are in a circle of people that do these things on a regular basis. But for me, I mean... Up until maybe five years ago, I didn't know anybody who really read. I didn't know anybody who really wrote. Nobody, we just watch TV and watch movies and <laughs> play video games and waste our lives, right? Not saying I don't still enjoy some of that stuff, uh, but there's so much power in sitting down and writing, sitting down and reading. The things that like slow you down are usually the most important ones, like to sit there and, you know, uh, put your due diligence in and, and exercise too. Like, let's talk about something that's just a day to day grind that you do on a daily basis and you won't see the results until, you know, a year later or more. So, where did you develop those habits? Was that somebody that you learned from or was that something that you realized just worked for you? No, it's, it's one of those things that you, I don't think you can read it in a book. I, I think it, I think you just have to – it's like on-the-job training. It just <laughs> – to survive, that's what you have to do. But what I found was – like a lesson I learned was if you're going – don't be a procrastinator mm -hmm. because bad things happen when you procrastinate. Mm -hmm. Just for example, if I don't get up at 7 to do weightlifting, let's, let's, let's say um, – my mother calls and says, hey, can you run me to the doctor's? Uh, our car is not working today. Or um, you get in your car and uh, the tire's flat. I mean, crazy stuff. I mean, anything, anything can happen. And when yeah. you're in the business world, your boss could call and need you to work on this important project. So if you postpone and say, hey, I'll do it this afternoon, that, that time may never happen. I remember one time we were going to buy out one of our business partners. And we got hung up on one point, one point, and it lasted six months. <laughs> well, the guy ended up having a heart attack. Huh. And then a year and a half go by before we could even talk about it again. Yeah. And by then, the value of the company had increased, and it cost more money. So <laughs> do it. Do it quickly. <laughs> if something happens, act on it fast. Like yes. if you have the chance. Yeah, and absolutely. That's, act quickly. That's, Make yourself do it. That's one of the things you hear over and over again from successful people, from successful businesses. When the when that thing is there in the forefront, get it done, get it over with. Absolutely. And uh, I, I suffer from that. That's one of the main things I think for me is like there's certain things that I will procrastinate on and I don't even have a reason. And I know I don't have a reason. And that's where I – and then what happens through that is you start beating yourself up. 
<laughs> over not doing it. So <laughs> you're, you're putting more issues on the issue and just do the freaking thing. Get it over with, and it'll be done with. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> it's so easy to say, right? But like, it takes a lot of discipline over the years of practicing that. Well, there's more procrastinators out there than there are. Uh, I'll call them action takers. Yeah, I see it time and time again. There's a there's two things. Uh, t- this guy Ty Lopez that I follow, uh, he always talks about IPs or PIs. So IPs are not procrastinators; they're impatiently patient. I always try to apply this. So if you're impatiently patient, you're impatient to start something. And then you're patient to see it through. But most people are patiently impatient. They're patient to start. They'll be like, ah, I'll get to it eventually. And then once it starts, they're impatient to see a result. They want it done like that. And that's most of society. But if you can flip that, I use that as like a method that seems that it's so simple, but it works because it's, it's simple. I feel like that. It's a great approach. Can, and it's it's 100% true, too. You were saying about when it, the, the, the guy who purchased your company and how... There's some, like a, a saw going off or something. I don't think it's been Mike's picking it up. But um, you were saying about uh, you learned a lot from him in his his work ethic and watching somebody like like he is at such a, such a high level. Uh, your mentors, like who did you have that was a mentor in your life, whether you chosen to be or they just ended up being like somebody that you learned a lot from. Did you search out search for those people? And how did you know uh, that they were the right person making the right impact? Like, I'm sure that guy who bought your company, you didn't know necessarily that you were going to learn a ton from him. You just know you were, he was buying your company. Then you find out, wow, this guy's yeah. amazing. Yeah, I know. He, had, he, taught me my, he taught me my best lesson. And I'll come back and answer your question, which was trust but ver- verify. Mm. And, you know, it sounds so simple, but what he meant was – you, while you should allow people to make decisions and go about their jobs without micromanaging them, you don't want to wait until the project is due to say to wait for them to say, "Oh, it's delayed," or "Oh, I screwed up," <laughs> or "It's way off track." Yeah. So you do that by having non-intrusive weekly meetings. So every Friday at two, we're going to have a status report. I mean, if it makes sense for that project weekly, but, um, and that's what I, I did from that point forward. So I knew when things were off track because I verified rather than just trust. Well, you can trust a lot of people, yeah. but even trustworthy people can fail in a project because a lot of times people won't tell you they need help. They, mm-hmm. don't, they don't want to look weak Very true. to their boss. Yeah. Um, and, and also, I guess in that sense, Whenever you're left to your own devices and it's not necessarily your company or your baby, it's easy to let things slide because it's not yours. Now, in your situation, it's your baby, so you are on the ball with stuff. But any of your coworkers or anybody you hire on as employees, um, and this is any company, I would imagine, the companies that I've been in, I've been in this situation. I was that person who would, ah, I'll get to it tomorrow. Ah, it's not a big deal. I don't really need to get that done right now. Because it's not me. It's not my thing. I'm not, like, deathly passionate about it. Correct. So I don't need it to happen as much as somebody else does. That's right. And, yeah, boy, the verification is huge because, yeah, you got to keep track of people and make sure they're doing the right things. Um well, when, back to mentors. Whenever we, we, whenever we were saying about that, yeah, with the mentors, this is a question. I just started searching for my own mentors, uh, you know, maybe five years ago. 
and I found some great people that I've, I've learned a lot from online and in person. How did you make sure that, uh, number one, you're serving that person? Because as a mentor, the way I always envision is I have to offer them something. They can't just be giving me everything. What would be the point of that? I've got to be able to bring something to the table that they could, that could benefit them. Did you approach it in that sort of situation? Or did you not even think about that? It, was just, it just kind of like naturally happened the way that it happened? Well, for me, I never sought out a mentor. It just happened to run into some really good people who were very, I was fortunate, they were very giving of their time to me. First one was uh, a local attorney. His name was David Helpern. He was my first mentor. And he was he was an attorney. Um, he was a litigator. And he he took me under his wing and he helped me get contracts with all the other law firms in town but he taught me how to write contracts and the importance of contracts and what you know what I should negotiate with in liability so he taught me more than contracts come to think of it he taught me how to negotiate he he was my he was my first mentor and then um did you hang around him often? How much time did you spend with him on a regular basis? I think these are questions I'm asking this because I'm curious myself and I think anybody listening who is wondering, like, what does a mentor mean? What does that look like? Like, what was the amount of time you spent and what was the, you know, relationship? Well, first of all, you have to recognize what this particular person brings to the table. Is it something that is beneficial to you? Mm-hmm. Right? Because... There'll be a lot of people who want to give you their time that will lead you down a path to nowhere. Yeah. Um, but he was a really smart guy, and you recognize that instantly. Usually the and, ones who come out of the woodwork to, to try to help you are the ones maybe you want to stay away from because they're the <laughs> ones who are just looking to blow some steam. You know, they just want to, like, talk. Yeah, that's right. You, you, don't, yeah, you don't want a total talker, that's for sure. Right. <laughs> you want someone who's a good listener. That hears your problems and helps you fix them. But, you know, he I, – I put in his computer system. So I spent a lot of time there initially putting it in and then we just go to lunch, have a dinner every now and then, talk about issues. But uh, he, he was an attorney but he was also an entrepreneur. The guy had a very creative mind. He had a lot of great ideas and we talk about them. And while he – he he didn't know technology. He was into technology, and I could – I mean, my give back to him was teaching him what technology could do and not do. Mm. So he would bounce things off me. Yeah. You were probably very valuable to him being in the world you were in. What, now, what year was this? Was this like in the, the early years of your business, or where were you at? Yes, very early years of our business. So especially in the early, mid-late 80s, I mean, if you found somebody who knew – about technology, you knew about software, you wanted to get near that person because it was, I mean, still is a very un- misunderstood world and very confusing and complicating to the outside person. So I imagine you were very valuable to him just as much as he was to you. Oh, yeah. Uh, do you think that moving, so just kind of uh, looking at what you did as a job, because it seems like you're a very fun-loving guy. I don't know you that well, but it seems like, I mean, obviously doing the sitcom, which is comedy, doing stand-up, you like to have fun, you like to laugh. I mean, I like to make people laugh. That's You don't like to laugh yourself. Well, I do like to laugh. <laughs> I, I, I never I, laugh. I just make people laugh. I don't get pleasure out of making myself laugh. <laughs> <laughs> My question is, 
because this is something I struggle with. I love uh, entertaining. I love doing. I, I have a radio show. I love making comedy because it's fun. I struggle with the serious ends of business. So when it comes to contracts, when it comes to negotiations, uh, when it comes to structure, I'm not exactly it. it I guess it sla- it scares me slash bores me. But I know that if I would dive in and start to learn it, I would probably start to really like it. It's just taking the time to do that, I guess, and and, and I guess maybe telling myself that I'm not that person. And the more I tell myself that, the less I am that person. So, what were you like? Or are you kind of a mix of both? Like, where you're fun loving, like to make people laugh, but also have a serious side that can really buckle down and get things done. <laughs> I'm almost never serious. Okay. Uh, this is the most serious you'll hear me on the show. <laughs> Same here. I'm not very serious myself either, but uh, I, on this side, I'd like to be because it's a good way to, to, to learn. I mean, listen, if again, it comes back to communication and having a bond with the customer. I, I feel like I never had to ask someone for the sell. Mm. By the end of our relationship, not our end of our relationship, but I'll call it the end of the sales process, they would ask me f- for how, you know, how much does the system cost, when can you put it in, all the right buy signals because I, I never wanted to feel like I, – I, I never enjoyed taking money out of someone's pocket. You know, mm-hmm. I'm a giver, not a taker. I, but I felt like – if we became friends and I saw the value I could provide to them, I was giving them value, and that made me feel good. And once that happens, um, naturally you need a contract, and they turn them over to the lawyers, and you have your own lawyer. So I've learned that if there are things you're not good at, then you need to hire somebody to do those things for you. Yeah. Like, you know the old saying, um, you, you should you should uh, hire slow and fire fast. Yeah, I have the exact opposite. Hire quick, fire slow. <laughs> <laughs> I never enjoyed firing anybody. Um, <laughs> it was I hated it. Uh, really hated it. And uh, so the longer you take to uh, feel out that person, make sure they're the right person, then less likely you're going to have to fire them down the road. Spend more time getting to know them and hiring them then you won't have to go through that process of that, uh, chopping their head no, off. No, that's, <laughs> that's right. But when it I, – I, I actually built a system to learn how to fire people in, in, like in my head. It, oh, okay. it was This was the process. Make that person aware of what they did that was so wrong. Tell them in very clear terms, if you don't do X, Y, Z, you will be fired. Mm-hmm. And if they don't do X, Y, Z – with clear conscience, you can walk into them and say, sorry, you didn't do X, Y, Z. I told you this would happen, and now it's happening. It's just like what people tell you in books to deal with your kids. Yeah. If you, if you constantly threaten them with something and never follow through with it, eh, yeah. it's just, you're just noise. You're just crying wolf, yeah. yeah. They're not going to listen to you. Well, I guess like what you said with uh, trust but verify, right? Mm-hmm. You're giving them the information so they can trust that what you're saying is legitimate so that, hey, you're on the chomping block. If this doesn't happen, you got to go, which is very honest and upfront, which I would appreciate if my boss told me that, right? That would be a great thing to hear. But then if you don't follow through, then you know why. It's not like this sudden thing, like, what the hell did you fire me for? Right, you know, but that's what happens. Yeah. In reality, yeah. in the real world, that's what happens well, my, over and over again. People my don't old, know why they got fired. My old boss, would the thing he would do was he would get you in a conversation about something that you both enjoyed. 
So you'd be laughing, hammering it up, like having a good time. Then he'd slap you with whatever it was. <laughs> and it was like this. I got, I understand why he did it, but it was a terrible method because all of a sudden you're feeling all this camaraderie and then boom, hits you with this blindside out of nowhere. Whether it was, uh, you know, your fault or not or whatever the situation, it just was always, it was just a terrible way to handle things. And, and my mom, the same thing, like she would, everything would boil up. She'd never say a word. And then all of a sudden, you know, explosion. <laughs> and that's the worst for a kid, too, to go through that and have to experience that. It's, it's very confusing to your psyche. Like, what the hell's going on? Um, so I, that's one of the things I find when, when it comes to what you did. And you were talking about this when we had first met. When I talk about you seeming like you can really buckle down and get serious about things, you said at one point when you guys had to scale, you went through a series of, I don't know how many business books that you went through. Yes. <laughs> and then read all those books, took all the information, implemented it into the country, into the company, and then changed the whole culture of the company Absolutely. through doing that. Where the hell did you find the discipline, number one, and maybe it was just in you, maybe, maybe you don't have a, a specific answer for this, but it seems like that was a very, uh, you know, that's a very straightforward logical business kind of move to take all those steps and implement all that. So how did that, that, that it happen out of like extreme necessity, like that it, it, it had to happen and you were the only person who was going to be able to do it. How long did that whole process take from the beginning of reading the books to implementing everything? And, uh, what was your thought process going through it? Did you feel, cause I feel like I would just be <laughs> very back and forth the entire time. Like I got this, I got this, I don't have it. I'm a mess. The whole thing's falling apart. And I feel like I would be juggling that throughout those months or years. So what was that like? Yeah, it's a great question. I, I think it took three years to implement. Okay. Uh, so it wasn't overnight. Yeah. But I'm telling you, I, I, you know, people give me books to read like, you know, Who Moved My Cheese? <laughs> um, I, and I know a lot of people love that book and I, 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 I don't. Um, I've never read it. Good. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Um, now, Good to Great was the first book I read that inspired me. Mm. I mean, I put that book down and I was totally committed that I was complacent. I was happy with the way things were because I had enough money. Um, but I wasn't building anything great. What really, that spoke to you and your company directly at that time. Well, it spoke to me. Yeah, and, I mean, I read that book and it spoke to me too. But I didn't. I'm not. I wasn't where you were when you read it. So I mean, I imagine even more so. It meant. Well, a lot. we were doing somewhere between four and five million dollars a year in sales. Um, I just felt like we were going through the motions because we were a good company. Not, not to say we weren't a great. We, we we were a good company. We weren't a poor company. Mm -hmm. um, and by poor, I mean uh, we we were doing things. Pro we weren't like uh, screwing projects up or anything like that. I mean, we were running well. Um, it's just we didn't challenge ourselves, and I thought we were capable. We had great people. I thought we were capable of something better than what we were doing, and so. I, I talked to the the leaders of the company, and there's another great topic. Um, you should always you should always teach people the things you know, so that you're building leadership chain below you. Right? Mm -hmm. You, you got to have those leaders because when you want to turn the ship around, 
you need everyone's buy-in. And if you have the right leaders, they're on board with you. They'll do whatever you want to do because they believe in you. Yeah. And you believe in their ability to turn that ship around. And so we said, listen, this is what I want to do. Here, here's the plan I came up with. And it took me three weeks to come up with the, uh, just a general plan of where we wanted to be. This is after you read all the books. This is after I read the one book. Good to great. I said, I'd like us to get... By by 2010, I'd like us to be at 55 million in sales. Hmm. And I paused for effect, and they all looked at me like, "You are freaking crazy, man! There is no way we're going to go from five to 55." So let's put this in perspective. So you from 84 up until what year was this? 2000. This was like 2003. Wow. Okay. So now I'm getting a better idea. So that was a long time of being good. Decades of being a good company. Yes. So I thought this was like in the early phases still. No, we had like this 50 employees. The... We were just ah, cruising along. Okay, I got you. So that's what really, that, that's huge then, that you guys were complacent, doing well, but complacent for many years. Yeah, we were and... consistent, you know. We got to that first million, we got to five, and then we just said, yeah, this is nice. Everyone's making enough money. No one's complaining. They're underpaid. Yeah. Uh, everything's going well for us. And we were on cruise control. Yeah. And uh, after they got over their shock, I said, this is how we're going to get there. And I laid out I laid out the plan of everything we had to do. And I said, if we do this, it will work. I know we can do this, and it will work if we can do all of these with 100% efficiency, accuracy, and execution. If we do all this, if we can execute this, we will hit that number. And they said, Okay. Let's do it. So we had a big company meeting, and we got everyone on the same page. I laid out the same plan for the entire company. So this is what we want to do. Some of you aren't going to make it <laughs> because if we're going to scale this operation, I need more out of you. Mm-hmm. And some of you don't have the skill sets to scale that we need. I will pay for your education. It's on you. You can go back to school. You pick and choose and tell me what you need to do. Wow. To get to where you need to be. Some people did. Some people didn't. And those people, you know, fell off the ship. <laughs> but once again, you gave them They had the opportunity. Notice. That's right. And you were going to pay for that opportunity for them Absol- to advance. Absolutely, 100%. Out of the, you say you had 50 employees? Yes. Out of the 50, how many got on board and did it? Oh, um, I would say everyone but 10. Maybe we lost 10 of those people. But we ended wow. up with a company of 150 people. So we were adding people. So you had a pretty good team. I mean, you and your the guys at the top, and then your employees below. I had a that. great team. I had, I had a level of leadership for my position that was probably three deep. So if I got hit by a bus, next man standing could get could take my place. And I told everybody knew what I did. I was very transparent. I didn't hide things from the company yeah. everything was laid out for them they they knew what i was thinking at all times and i communicated with the entire company on a regular basis i feel like you're the kind of boss everybody would want seems like <laughs> not keeping things hidden not holding all the cards so no people hate somebody that. could come in and yeah well, people want to hold all the power so they nobody else can come in and take That's, their place and it's if you run things like that it can't last. And you're, you're going to build dissent? And... Well, my boss told me at um, my last company, 
the one I told you was a good taskmaster. He told me a, a, type A people will hire other type A people. But if you make that wrong hire and you get a B person, they will hire C people. C people will hire D people. Ah. And he said, and that's how you build a company that will fail. <laughs> oh, wow. That's Yeah, they so, hire people less than them so they don't overtake them. That's correct. He said, yeah, you always hire. I was never, ever afraid to hire someone smarter than me. I loved it. It was great. Yeah. I could bounce ideas off them. That's And that's a huge trait. What time is it? It's I didn't four. Even, yeah, we're cool. Okay. Let's say Microsoft. Whoop. Pops on earning report. Okay. All right. We were just talking about hiring people that were smarter than you. So we'll go off that. Okay. And that's a huge piece that I want to uh, wanted to talk to you about because a lot of people are afraid to be around people or obviously it's intimidating to be around somebody smarter than you, but it's a it's a necessity if you want to grow and get better. So was that something that you uh, were just 
comfortable with or did you have to like train yourself to be okay and i find this myself when i get around somebody who's like super smart you just you get insecure you know you can be like oh man this person's like way more intelligent than me i feel like i shouldn't even be in the same room as they are and usually that's not the case you know it doesn't reciprocate the other way uh they don't the other person doesn't feel any awkwardness but how did you go about doing that and um how are you comfortable with it and how did you use that to grow well Let's talk about two different environments when you're around someone smarter than you. Okay. The first environment is when it's your own business. So you have a comfort of knowing you're the boss. Mm, yeah. There is no way that guy can do anything to you. And you can fire him, right? <laughs> so what do you care? That's true. Okay. <laughs> it doesn't really matter when you're the boss. But when you're not the boss, it's different. And to your point, you do get intimidated around those people. And again, I hate to keep going back to it, but it's all about relationships and communication and how you deal with that person. And I have found that smart people like to tell you how smart they are. <laughs> and if you – I'm going to use a word called use them correctly, but I don't mean use them, use them um, – but but if you can't if you're a learner and you want self improvement you want to learn things you can ask them questions there's no harm in that mm-hmm. and and that's all you can do I mean but if you're if if you're not a learner and you don't really care what they have to say you're going to be intimidated but you need to take what what they know and absorb it Have you been around very smart people outside of your business Oh yeah that oh my god you yes. knew. Say, like, you, you met somebody or you just happened to be somehow in the vicinity of somebody that you re- really looked up to or you knew was very successful or you knew, you know, if they, if you got in the right circle with them, it would take you to the next level. And you're like, man, I know I have to find a way to, to, to meet this person or to build a relationship with them. But you don't want to be weird about it. You don't want to be creepy about it, right? But you want to <laughs> still find the way to do it. How do you do that? Because I think that's a huge question that a lot of people have is, like, number one, getting over the the fear of talking to the person number two feeling stupid because they are higher than you and you want to learn from them but you don't know how to but then also just like how do you do that and make it fluid <laughs> like you're trying to engineer something that should be natural and it's it's a weird situation to be in i think <laughs> i think most of my skill set was developed in bars talking to strangers uh, but it's no different really um, I, so for example, my last job, I, you know, I, I talked to a lot of private equity people, people that worked on wall street. They were much smarter than me, not in every area of life, but in some areas they were a lot smarter than me. Yeah. Um, you learn to listen a lot, ask a lot of questions, meaningful questions, not stupid questions. <laughs> um, but meaningful questions. and Would you plan things out beforehand when you met with them? Like, oh, I'm going to probably ask this and this. Like, think, Make sure that you have like something ready to go. I always plan things out in advance. Okay. Always. Okay. <laughs> I'm not good at off the cuff because then I ask that stupid question that you shouldn't <laughs> ask. But Expose I, yourself. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Expose myself as the fraud that I am. <laughs> um, but no, you would find out um, – Listen, I got to tell you, I had a sales process that a lot of us used. Um, This is one of the advantages of the Internet. When you're going to meet with someone, whether it's a sale or it's for anything, 
a lot of the information about that person is on the internet. Mm -hmm. And so whether it's LinkedIn, whether it's their Facebook page, whether it's Instagram, you can see the kind of things they like and you just you look you creep through the photos. Yeah. And you say, "Huh. All right, there's got to be something in here that I can talk about to this guy that will help us bond." And it's... you find out what it is. And if you don't do that, then at the very least, you better hope he has pictures hanging in the office so you could scan around the photos and say, oh, there's a picture of him fishing. I know something about fishing. I'll talk about that. Yeah. But, but the, you know, the, the proper way to do it is to research it ahead of time. Learn as much information about the people you're meeting with as you possibly can. Especially now when it's so easy to do. The information's all there. Oh, yeah. Put, a little, put an hour into it or 30 minutes into it even. You can figure out way more than you know, 10, 15 years ago when you'd have to dig through God knows what or call their assistant or their family member. How would you the, ever figure things out? <laughs> you're 100% accurate. I mean, just think about it from the standpoint of, at the very least, you'll know where they went to college. And if they're on working on Wall Street, it's probably in a pretty impressive college. Mm -hmm. So you could talk about that. How tough was it to get into that school? What did you major in? My children are interested in that. Mm -hmm. uh, whatever. Just Make find, something up. Yeah, Just find get. something. <laughs> They'll talk about themselves. People people don't want to listen to somebody who talks about themselves all the time. And I've learned this, too, is that you're right on that because whenever you feel like you can't ask somebody a question or you can't uh, invite them to, to engage with you in some sort of way, people, if you're reaching out for help and you're asking them of their expertise and they can expound on that for a while. Most people like to do that. They're especially, they're happy to help when it's in their world and their realm and they can contribute. I feel like, do you feel that way? With yeah, yourself? absolutely. You love doing it. <laughs> I love doing it. And I'm not even like up to a certain level yet, but I still later on today, I'm going to Penn, Penn state to talk to kids. And I just like doing that because I think of myself when I was in college and had no freaking idea what I was doing and didn't even know why I was in college. You know, it's nice to go see some kids doing the same thing and hopefully help them out along the way a little bit. Hey, I switched majors three times in college. Did I didn't know what the hell I wanted to be either. What were your first, what were the first two? I, I went, uh, first I wanted to be a lawyer and then, believe it or not, I had my first public speaking class and I choked. Mm. I just froze in front of my entire class, couldn't say a word, yeah. which is ironic now because I'm a decent public speaker. Um but it wasn't always that way. And then I then I switched to pre-med, and I went there till I was probably a junior, and then I switched to math. So, Wow. And then did you finish with math? Did you... I finished with math. Okay. Thought I was going to be an actuary. What the heck's an actuary? Uh, they do statistics for insurance companies. So what are the odds that your 16-year-old son who just got his license will crash a car? <laughs> that <laughs> That's was... how you price insurance. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So your passion then, because I love talking about passions and figuring out like when people actually find their passions and follow that through with life, that's usually the happiest people. Was this what the company that you built, the software that you designed in that world, was that your passion, number one passion, or was it like a side passion, or did it become the more you were in it, more of a passion, like how, because now that you're out, obviously comedy is something that you love. That's probably a big passion you had when you were young. So how did the how did software fit in? Was it something that you were really into, or you just found that you were good at? Well, f first let's take let's take the, the for example doing the sitcom, 
doing stand-up. That's about getting outside my comfort zone. Okay. Being learning new things, trying new things. I like doing that. I like pushing myself. Uh, but my real passion is creating. Okay. I love to create more than anything else. Not necessarily for the prison industry, but I like creating things that well, I don't want to say change the world. That sounds like I'm a pompous ass, but um, <laughs> I like th- doing things that could make a difference. Yeah. In somebody's life, no matter what it is. Uh, I mean, the prison business was totally an accident. I mean, we failed at so many things we did. And, and by failing, I mean not that we weren't making money at the business, but they became the, – the business model we had was not sustainable long term hmm. for one reason or another. Um, so we kept changing and trying to find our niche. And when we finally found it, it just happened to start in the corrections space. And once we found it, then the passion came for it. Okay. Uh, you know, our job was to learn. I mean, we used to make people watch um, this the series of American Correction Association accredited tapes, How to Be a Correction Officer. Every, we called it boot camp. Every employee had to go through it so they could think like some – they could know what it was like to be in a prison Okay. as an employee and as an inmate. And that helped us think about product design and and new new things we could do to create efficiencies. Yeah. And that was probably um, one of the key things we did. Boy, that's really that's good. Like the creating aspect could apply to anything. So when you love to create, and that's your passion. Yes, absolutely. You applied that to an industry that you probably never thought of otherwise, which was the prison industry. You probably never thought like, oh, I'm going to go and design. <laughs> software products for a prison that didn't register on your radar but once you got in there and you saw the opportunity to create that got you excited and to learn and to grow absolutely so that was that's kind of like the basis for everything that's the best way to to, i mean i guess not everybody has the same passion but i feel like if you can have a passion for creating it can be applied to many different worlds well if you think about the prison business when we started if you wanted to give an inmate money, you came in the jail and you handed someone cash. That's how you got an inmate money. Mm-hmm. An inmate can make a phone call. If an inmate had a complaint about something, they filled out a piece of paper. Hey, this officer's giving me a hard time. Or I want to request an upper bunk. Or I need a low-salt diet. I need this medicine. Today's world, everything's done through a tablet. Yeah. An inmate has a tablet. That they sit in their cell, they can make phone calls on the tablet, they can schedule visits with their loved ones, their loved ones can come into the jail and, and they have a kiosk to deposit the money, they can send it on the internet, um, inmates can buy, for their friends and family can buy for them streaming music service, <laughs> this secure email. They do everything on that tablet, mm-hmm. including educational programs. So the world is changed we we came out with i'll call it disruptive technology and you your company was kind of at the forefront of that at the beginning of it at the beginning of it yeah it was it was a really cool thing to watch that is really cool to see where it's gone from then to where it's at now but unless you could think like an inmate or a corrections officer or a warden superintendent what have you you couldn't even begin to think about things to create Mm mm-hmm 
So that's a big piece of it too to dive into that world to make sure that you know what those people who are in there are going through and what it's like doing that market research. That's right. It's is it's very important. Yeah. Well, I, I would imagine you know getting into being what I've done over the past couple of years. I have been doing it a lot. So whenever you're doing it a lot, you feel like you know everything about it, but you only know it from your perspective and you're not looking at your customers. You're not looking at other people who are doing it at a higher level, you know, and there's so many different pieces of the puzzle, no matter what industry it's in. If you're not taking the time to do that research, especially when it comes to the prison system, that was, that's probably the make or break that you guys had a, a huge break there. It worked really well for you. If you wouldn't have done all that market research and studied how the wardens were and what the inmate situation was like, I can't, it, how do you feel like that made the difference in what you guys created? No, absolutely. I mean, it's the same though for any business. I mean, no matter what you do, if you're not doing market studies and learning what the customer wants, I mean, there are, let me just level set. There are occasions where someone can build a product and they will come. Those are very rare. Mm-hmm. And I'll use the example of, say, the iPhone. At the time the iPhone came out, people were using Sony Walkmans. Mm-hmm. And you'd go for a run. You're a jogger. You would run with that little Sony Walkman on your skipping side. Skipping the whole CD, time. Skipping the whole time. And, um, you know, Apple came out with the iPod. I'll say the iPod, not the iPhone. The iPod. Yeah. And the world didn't know they wanted that. And then Apple built the whole ecosystem with music and everything else around it. So they became passionate about it when people bought it. Mm-hmm. Um, but in most cases, I'd say 99% of the time, you get a product and you have a focus group. You get as many people from that would potentially use it to weigh in, talk about what's right and what's wrong with it, make improvements before you mass market it. You have all, you know, the worst mistake you can do is build a solution in search of a problem, right? Yeah, exactly. I mean, that's the worst <laughs> thing you can do. You've got yourself a lot of work ahead of you <laughs> if that's the situation. Absolutely. But that, and that is what happens a lot of the times. People think they have a billion-dollar idea. They run with it and don't do any sort of research into it. And if anybody else besides their family and friends wants it, and then by the time it's built and you've wasted all that money, you realize, oh, nobody actually does want this thing. Or there's one already out there like it. That, that, oh, that yeah, that's even worse. Better. <laughs> that's even worse. Um, so learning from smart people, being humble enough to, to listen to smart people and to, to, to grow from them, and then to be able to I don't know, parlay this into the, the life that you're living now, it's pretty, it's pretty awesome to see. I enjoy... Not that I've known you for that long, but I just kind of like watching your journey and talking to you t- today. It's really, uh, you know, rare. Do you feel like, I, I, what's where's the question I'm going with on this one? Do you feel like you got lucky or do you feel like your experience matched the, the time that you were in? And how can you relate that to somebody who's like 20, year old, 20 years old right now or 25 years old right now, maybe doesn't know what to do with their life? What's the strategy? And that's a very difficult question to answer. <laughs> wow. But what would you say to somebody? Because you, you've stumbled through this thing and then figured it out and then mastered it and got really good at it and created an incredible business from it, and now you're free to do it, go out and create the things that you want. Most 
people starting out want to do the thing you're doing now at the beginning, right? Without Correct. going through the 20, 30 years of struggle. <laughs> That's right. It's not going to happen. Yeah, it's not going to happen. So I, I guess, should they be, where should they start? If somebody has not even begun, maybe they have a job or they're getting out of college or whatever, what would you recommend they do? What would be the, the building blocks that, that you went through? Well, you asked a number of questions. I asked way too many. I confused myself. (laughs) First, you talked about luck. And did I feel lucky? You know. Uh, I believe luck is like karma. It's this intangible thing that people think it is. Oh, he got lucky. Oh, geez. You know. He was in the right place at the right time. Mm -hmm. There's an element of truth there, but I think scientifically you could prove luck and karma uh, uh, and bad luck and bad karma are are very much scientifically can be proven. Mm -hmm. And I think it's this. And this is just my life philosophy. Um, I think that the more connections you have, we go back to connections, the more connections you have, and the, the the more you treat people well and do nice things for, that will come back to you in some form or fashion. Not through magic, mm-hmm. but because you have so many connections out there. Person A says to person B, hey, I just met Rob. What a great guy. What a smart guy. Yeah. And they pass it along. And so out there in the world, you're being spoken of in a positive manner. And therefore, when your name comes up, someone goes... Yeah, I heard about him. I don't remember, but the image in my head is he's a nice guy. He's really smart, or he yeah. does X, Y, Z. And that's why I say meet as many people as you you want, as you can. Um, and don't be an asshole whenever you meet them. Yeah, and don't be an asshole. <laughs> Do nice things. Be a giver, not a take. Don't always be a taker. Yeah. Don't be the guy that uh, someone invites you to dinner and you order the lobster because you're not paying, you know, <laughs> or the filet, you know. <laughs> So it's, that's like philosophy, you know, number one for me. And and don't just meet any people. I mean, it, it's good to have a lot of connections. Mm-hmm. But get people that are are successful. Yeah. If you hang around successful people, you're more likely to learn a lesson that will be valuable to you than... You're just going to pick up on things just by being around you, them. You will. You know, there's that, I read somewhere, you know, if you want to be a billionaire, if you're a millionaire, you want to be a billionaire, hang out with billionaires. Yeah. And there's some truth in that, in that you get good tips and good knowledge, and they know things that you don't mm-hmm. that help them be successful. And I find that one of the coolest things is picking up on the little things that seemingly don't make a difference. This great book, The Slight Edge, if you've read that or not, I'm not sure. Not. But it's just about like... You know, daily disciplines, little things that the, you can do daily that will not make a difference in a week, a month, maybe even a year. But over the course of your life will make gigantic differences in, in your life, like like exercising every day. You might not see a result after a year even. That's right. You might not see that much out of it. But, you know, 20 years down the road, you definitely – like doing yoga for me, that's one for me that's like I know that it feels good doing it, number one. But I know like when I'm 80, I'll be much more – Versatile. I'll be much more limber because I did. I continue to do yoga. That's right. Well, that's what you know. People get the gym membership as a Christmas gift, and by you know end of February, early March, they're gone because they didn't see instant results. Yeah. Businesses like 
working out, I take time to show results. Yeah. So be patient. And asking you about like your daily habits, like what are your daily routines? I think those things are important because when you find a successful person, you got to, it's those little pieces of the puzzle. I mean, yeah, of course, how do you build a business or how do you scale from five to 55 million or whatever that might be? That's important. <laughs> but there's so many micro pieces to that uh, that you can pick up on that will, like getting up early. It's more important, I think, than many other things. And especially when you're laying in bed and you're like, I can sleep until 10. I could do that. I'd be mad at myself. I'm missing three hours out of my day. You know, especially when that's like the best part of the day most of the time. That's a little thing that you can implement and uh, with a little bit of willpower put into your life and over the years will be a huge change. Yeah, it's, you know, it's, uh, it's, Daily, proper daily habits replicated millions of times over and over again will get you to success. And it's even little things like, um, let me give you an example. I hated when someone I hadn't heard from for a long time, say a vendor that sold us product, they would just text me or email me, hey, it's been a while, we have this new product, would you like to see it? I instantly turned off. You know, I would spend time, and I still do it to this day, someone I haven't talked to in a long time. Uh, I will just send them a note, hey, how you doing? You want to catch up? How to calls? Care about the other person. Mm-hmm. It'll make your role as a salesperson much easier. Um, wish people happy birthdays. I mean, that's as simple as it gets. Mm-hmm. I mean, just be courteous and kind. I mean, every day I try to find someone... Like, just an example. So every day on Facebook, all my friends, I will wish them a happy birthday, maybe a little personalized note. Uh, Every day, I will try to call someone I haven't talked to in a while just to see how they're doing. And I don't want anything from them. I just, I really want to know how they're doing. If, If you fake it, people will know you're faking it. Yeah. The other tip to go back to one of your earlier questions was, and this is, this is hard medicine to swallow. I see so many people that start a business. They, they look at this world through this victim mentality lens. Oh, his father gave him the money to get started. Mm-hmm. Oh, you know, uh, he had money to begin with, so he got a loan from the bank. Or, oh, he was just lucky. Mm-hmm. You know? For every person you point out like that, I'll show you a guy who had nothing. Yeah, and and build his business from nothing, and was successful. And I know many people like that. And you know, I just you've already defeated yourself if you're always looking at what the other guy has versus what you has or the breaks you have. You know, there's always someone better off than you. Always. Yeah, you're always you're never going to be the best. That's right. And you can learn something from everybody. So even if they did. They were a trust fund baby and had a bunch of money or whatever. I mean, there's a lesson in there to be learned, whether it's a good one or a bad one. That's correct. I think Abraham Lincoln said, like, he learns something from everybody he meets. It's not always the right things, but he learns something. You know, so the, you might learn things not to do. You know? <laughs> well, that's a great point. I mean, that's, that's a good a, tip, too. Good. And I, I, I've used that, and it actually is very, like, I look at Donald Trump, like, I don't agree with a lot of stuff he says. But at the same time, I admire that. The guy, like, he has balls, number one. Like, nobody else. <laughs> Huge. And just, like, his, yeah, just his, whether it's he's aloof or confident or whatever it is, it's just, a, I watch watching him, it's like, this guy is a master. He's amazing at what he does, and I don't know how he does it, and nobody else knows how he does it. He just does it because he has this 
beyond 10,000 hours, he has like his 50,000 hours in. I mean, that guy is well trained in what he does, and it's amazing. So anytime you find somebody and you're like, I can't stand that person for whatever reason, then it might be worth dissecting a little bit. You don't have to like everything about everybody. That's, that's a good a, point. It's a big piece of it. He pretty much mastered Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> certainly did. <laughs> he certainly has. And, uh, I have to say the he he really changed the nature of what it means for character and uh I think they I'll just leave it at that as a president. Yeah, he's changed he's he's broken down a lot of walls, I guess you could say, and while he's building one up, he's knocked down a lot of other ones. <laughs> he's done it at the, at the same time. I don't know if he's built one yet. Well, he's still <laughs> he's trying to he's, he's working on it. <laughs> yeah, it, it's a, it's fascinating. So, I want to thank you number one for coming in here. Sure. And taking the time to talk. Is there anything you want to throw in that I haven't jumped on, that I haven't touched on, that you'd like to throw out there? Any notes you have there? Anything you're promoting? How can we find your stand-up? Where can we find the uh, Almost Grown Up show? Yeah, so if you're an Amazon Prime user, you can uh, look, search for Almost Grown Ups. It's free to Amazon Prime customers. It's also on YouTube. Uh, you can search for Almost Grown Ups there. The stand-up will be on Amazon Prime uh, under the uh, corporate name Stone Man Productions. Uh, also have a new uh, daily supplement drink coming out in, in oh, yeah? June called FOIA, F-O-Y-A, as in good FOIA. <laughs> good FOIA, <laughs> I like that. Yeah. <laughs> is that yours or are you in with somebody else uh, on that? Yeah, it's a guy from Altoona. Uh, well, he lives in Sterling, Virginia, but he's uh, from Altoona. His name's Chris Fidelli. Uh, it's a uh, four-ounce daily pre-workout drink. Okay. It has uh, caffeine, so you get five hours of extended-release caffeine. You get protein. You get glucosamine, which is good for your joints. You get quercetin, which is a powerful anti-inflammatory. Hmm. You get your B vitamins, D vitamins, low-calorie, low-salt. Um, it's no artificial ingredients whatsoever. So what, it's When uh, is that coming out? It's coming out in June. Uh, it'll be available on Amazon. Okay, so it's not in stores or anything like it that. It is not in stores. Uh, it will be available on our website, www.foya.com, F-O-Y-A.com. And so you can order those two places. And we're hoping that uh, we're going to the Value Drug has a big show out at the Blair County Convention Center. Okay. And uh, there'll be buyers from all their pharmacies there. And we have... We have a product that's just like five-hour energy, so you can put it right by the cash register. Oh, so cool. we decided to do a healthy one. Five-hour energy, to me, tastes like chemicals. So yeah. We wanted to come out with one that has no chemicals in it. I also feel like it doesn't really work. I've taken it a bunch of times. I don't. I never notice any difference. No. I, well, I, I really don't get a buzz from it either, but then again, I drink two pots of coffee a day. So. <laughs> Maybe <laughs> nothing, nothing much makes, gives me Nothing makes a, a dent lift. after that. Listen, man, I'd love to have you come back on if you're up for it because I'd love to talk more about like creating the sitcom, about the stand-up, about like your life recently because I think that there's still a lot of lessons to be to pull out of that, and I just find it super interesting. The fact that you went out and decided to make a, a sitcom and pulled it off and got it on Amazon Prime. The fact that you went out and decided to do stand-up for the first time ever and did an hour and, what, 15 minutes? Yep. And, <laughs> and that's going to end up on Amazon Prime. Like, I, just diving into that whole world and how how you set that whole thing up is fascinating as well. So, how can people find you if they're looking for you online? 
and they want to get more information about you, where can they, where are the best places to get you at? Probably LinkedIn, um, Anthony Bambachi, B-A-M-B-O-C-C-I on LinkedIn. I'm also on Facebook, but uh, LinkedIn has my profile. Cool. So that's the best way. So, well, I guess I should leave you with this this final lesson to your, <laughs> your viewership. Please, yes. Your audio ship, you know. <laughs> You're, it's it's never too late to do all the things you always wanted to do in your life. So if you go back to 16-year-old you and you think outside the box and you think differently than everyone else and you push yourself enough and you get outside your comfort zone, you can do the same things I did if you just push yourself. I mean, that's the key to success. Mm-hmm. You know, Don't be afraid of change. Embrace it. And uh, put a hundred percent of your heart into it. Yeah, definitely. It's like, just as an example, stand up. I wrote my own material. I practiced it every day. Every day, I'd go for a walk and I'd have the routine in my head. Sometimes I would do these little crazy voices out loud. People thought I was a crazy person walking, walking down the street <laughs> on Union Avenue. Right? <laughs> <laughs> like, who is that guy? <laughs> but you know, I put everything I had into it. You know, you can't do anything half-assed. Yeah, without a doubt. And I, when you think about being 16 years old, I think that is, if you can go back to being, and I talk about this when I talk to students uh, at schools, when you're 14 to 16, like those are usually when you have whatever that is that you want to be at that age, that gets eventually beat out of you as you get a job. As you get more influence, as you have less time. I mean, there's just things that pile on. And then that one thing that you always wanted to get to, which might be your passion, might be the thing that you're like as a hobby or whatever. If you just like continue towards it throughout your life, you you can make that your career. It's just that everybody else, other people will try to get in the way and make that not your career. They want you to form to either because they failed, so they don't want to see you do well or... They think this is the right career for you, so they want you to go here. Your family did this in the past. They want you to go there. There's so many different reasons, but if you can stay true to that thing when you were young, you're probably going to end up pretty happy. That's that right. Could be your... There will always be 10 people who will tell you why you shouldn't do something, why it's, your idea is stupid. Um, and and sometimes your... your ideas are stupid, but... <laughs> <laughs> Hopefully you have people close enough who can uh, help you filter that out instead of just it's... shooting it down. What's well, why you do the market study. Yeah. Or <laughs> when you, you know, were example, so but. when you were fourteen or sixteen, what did you want to be? Oh, well, I wanted to paint and draw and play the guitar and create, be a comedy comedian, and yeah, just all things like that. I always wanted to be a comedian. I always wanted to write a sitcom like All in the Family. I mean, that's really old. Um, but I mean, that's but things where like it comes that. From, yeah. yeah, I love sitcoms. That's all I watch. That's all I wanted to do is be like, make people laugh. I enjoyed making people laugh. Yeah. And then you built software for prison systems. <laughs> yeah, man. <that's, laughs> wow. It's great. But, but you found passion in that. And you enjoyed doing it. I mean, obviously, look where it, look what it grew to. So, And then you came around full circle back to what you wanted to do when you were a kid. Yeah, I mean, you were creating the whole time, I guess. But I was, yeah. I was still fulfilling my path. I just had didn't know what my purpose was. It was to create, but create what? Yeah. And I just happened to find it. But, you know, that I forget, is it the Malcolm Gladwell book that said it takes 10,000 hours of practice mm-hmm. to be good? Well, you know, in the prison business, we went from like 1988 to 92 
before we really, 92, 93 is where we started getting some traction. We probably had our 10,000 hours in, and then the more hours we put into it, that's when the ideas start flowing because we knew everything about a prison. There was probably like 15, 20 people at my company that could run a prison, and we hired a lot of people that worked in prisons, ex-wardens, ex-superintendents. Man, that's smart. Um, I hope people are listening to this taking that advice because that's, that's huge to bring those people in. Oh, yeah. They gave us insight we never had. They they would tweak our product. We had our own focus group in-house. Well, what do you think about this? Uh, that's not good. Do this. So, so you went to all of those lengths. I guess the, where you stopped was actually getting arrested and thrown in prison. That could have been the ultimate test to see what the prison system's like. Yeah, I didn't want to do that. That would be the one. <laughs> Having <laughs> been in so many prisons, uh, <laughs> visiting right. um, and seeing what it's like to be in prison, I wouldn't wish that on anybody. <laughs> It's not a great place to be. Yeah, I'd imagine. Um, I wouldn't know either. Luckily, I'd never find out. There's wood under this table. Uh, cool. Tony, thank you so much. And like I said, I'd love to have you back in, talk more about what you're doing now, and I think there's a lot more to pull out of it. Sure. So. I'm happy to come back, Rob, whenever you want me. Cool, man. Thanks a lot. All right. See ya.